Hi, welcome to the Breckenridge Municipal Market Recap. I'm Sarah Chanda, a portfolio manager here, and I'm joined today by my colleague Eric Haas, a fellow PM on the tax-exempt desk. Thanks for tuning in. So we'll start off today's podcast with a recap on October's market, followed by a conversation on housing bonds, and finally a discussion on climate risk, specifically in what we're seeing in states like California. So I know we closed out Q3 with some volatility in the markets, Eric. What did October look like? So we did end last quarter with volatility in the markets, and September was the first negative month of performance in 2019. So depending on what your duration was in your portfolio, returns range from about negative 20 basis points to negative 1%. And overall, a standard intermediate portfolio was down around three quarters of a percent. So now fast forward to October, uh, and returns were back to flat or actually positive uh, across the curve. Uh, so muni yields fell in the shorter maturities, but they rose eight years and longer. So one thing this did do was reverse the inversion that we had in the front end of the curve. Uh, overall, the best performer over the month was the five-year part of the curve, which returned around half a percent, uh, and the long end was flat to negative. So now on the credit side of the story, we did have a reversal with higher quality actually outperforming on the month. So credits with AA or better credit ratings were up around 20 basis points, and single A's were only up around 15 in the month of October. But when you wrap that up into the whole year, A-rated still outperformed AAAs by over 130 basis points. Right, and another story that kind of continued even into October was really the technicals in the market. So on the supply side, one of the big stories of the month was really 52 billion in issuance is what we saw, uh, really brought on by a deluge of taxable muni issuance. And that's really after two back-to-back months of 30 billion in supply. And really what we're seeing is that issuers are coming to market, really benefiting from those lower rates and using the taxable market uh, as a mechanism to refinance debt, something no longer allowed in the exempt market post-tax reform. So that's why we saw that big uptick in the taxable side. Uh, over the month, actually, according to the bond buyer, more than $13 billion was taxable, 25% of the total that we had seen. And so through year-to-date, October supply now is about $330 billion. That's a 13% increase from the same period last year. And looking at the 30-day visible, which is a good metric for us to look at to see what's to come, uh, starting in November, uh, it was more than $17 billion. That's actually the largest number we've seen since 2008. Now, on the demand side of the equation, also continued to be the same kind of pace that we saw. Demand hasn't really slowed at all. Mutual fund flow is a good proxy for us to talk about demand. Has been 43 consecutive weeks of positive um, inflows. That was through the end of October. That pushed year-to-date fund flows to about $75 billion or so, that continuing on that record streak. So now turning our attention to our second topic of today, uh, we usually tend to highlight a sector that we feel offers some additional value, and this month we thought it would be interesting to talk about housing bonds. Uh, So Eric, let's kick it off with that. Sure. So you're looking at the housing sector of the municipal bond market. Really, it's originated by local housing authorities and individual states. So the the best way to think about it is that an agency will issue bonds. The proceeds from from those bonds are then loaned out to housing companies or to eligible borrowers. It's really broken into two sectors. There's single family and multifamily. And basically, the way the market's constructed now, about 60% of issuance falls in that single-family side, and 40% falls in the multifamily side. These are generally considered uh, special revenue bonds, and the revenue from the mortgage payments and accounts and reserves that are established under each individual issuer's indenture, as well as investment income earned on balances, support the revenue uh, to pay down the debt. So what is really the purpose of the housing sector of the muni market? Really, it has an affordable housing purpose. The idea is that with these proceeds, you can provide mortgage options for lower-income applicants. You can provide down payment assistance for first-time home buyers. Uh, and also on the multifamily side, there's also a portion that, that 
it's primarily on the multifamily side, which is for construction loans. So assuming that you want to build an actual development, the borrower can lend capital to a construction company or a builder to help build these individual housing facilities. One thing to think about are kind of the factors. So there's single family and multifamily. What's really the difference? On the multifamily side, it's a more diversified loan base. So there's a little less concentration risk as you would see on a single family borrower. And when we look at these deals, there, there are a number of different ways to participate in this portion of the market. These bonds in these deals can come taxable or they can come tax exempt as well. On the tax exempt side, generally we're seeing a 15 to 25 basis point yield pickup or additional yield relative to a similarly rated GO or revenue bond. And really, what are the risks that are paying you that, that additional yield? One, these are par bonds, so there's de minimis risk on them. Uh, also, there is prepayment risk, and, and one way to mitigate that risk or those risk factors are focus on shorter maturities that mature five years and in. These bonds do have shorter calls, but because of the shorter maturity on the overall structure, uh, you do have limited prepayment risk. Right, so outlining a number of reasons why we'd actually want to invest in some of these structures in the segment in general. And um, thinking about issuance, we just talked a little bit about that, and it's really a growing segment of the market. And as we saw, muni to treasury ratios decline. These lower ratios actually really increase the value of the subsidy that some of these programs provide to borrowers. So based on some data that we collected from the bond buyer, looking at a five-year span from 2013 to 2018, Issuance has actually increased about 150%. That went from $14 billion up to $21 billion. Now, it had been running about 4% of our total issuance back in 2013, 2014. Now that's up to about 6.25% in 2018. And the run rate we're seeing for this year is about the same, about 6.25%. In fact, from 2019 now, we're about $21 billion in issuance through October. And actually, thinking about performance this you know year in general, Eric, I know performance is been very good for munis. How has this segment of the market performed? It's performed well. So overall, again, we've had a lot of demand for munis. Uh, and when you look in this sector of the market, even though it, it's been higher than, than traditionally uh, seen, it's still a, a attractive part of the market. So what we've seen is that over the course of the month, this, the housing sector was up around 38 basis points and the rest of the general market was up around 13, which is the broad index. Uh, I mean, you think year to date, the housing sector is up a little over 7% and the general market's up a little under 7%. Part of that is due to the fact that the housing sector generally has a longer duration and longer duration has outperformed on the year. But still, with additional supply, uh, we've, we've seen some support for the, for the sector of the market. So lastly, uh, we've, we've seen some news lately about climate risk and, and how this may impact credit quality in the municipal market. Uh, most recently, California's been in the headlines with fires and power outages and the implications on state resiliency. So we do invest in the state of California on behalf of our clients, and these are issues that underscore the importance of looking beyond the, the basic fundamental analysis and incorporating a broader view of risk through the lens of ESG. Right. So we thought Cal's actually a really good example of that. You know, Cal, obviously a vibrant state fifth largest economy globally, but it's had its share of challenges, especially in recent months. Many of those headlines, as Eric points out, stemming from those climate-related issues. So we thought we'd take a moment to talk about them at the state level, but also at the local government level as well. So thinking broadly, you know, the state, 40 million people, the third largest by land, with $3 trillion in gross state product, but faces significant pressures across a budget, economic, and political landscape. So starting from the budget perspective, there has been chatter about them possibly bonding out to help finance some costs you know, related to the fires, helping out PG&E. Uh, the state itself, while it's stable, that could see some negative implications in the face of a modest downturn or recession. From an economic perspective, there are 
growth rate has outpaced the U.S. since 2010. Now, however, it's estimated around 2 to 2.2 percent for 2019, which is actually below U.S. GDP at 2.3 percent. What's interesting is that PG&E's CEO had come out you know, recently stating that it could take as long as 10 years for that company to really improve its electric system. So these sustained power outages could cripple businesses and prevent new business from entering. And then lastly, on a political front, you know, it's really the first test that Newsom has seen in his newly minted governorship. He's really facing pressure from a coalition of cities who want to turn PG&E or talking about taking some of the assets over and maybe turning it into more of a municipal utility. So that's a nice transition to what we're seeing on the local government front as well. That's right. We know we do invest in local governments in California, but in light of this uncertainty, especially what's been created by the utility companies like a PG&E, local governments, I'd say like San Jose, are taking matters into their own hands. They're joining forces to discuss a takeover of assets. Uh, but why are we seeing them act? Well, there's clearly an impact on a number of fronts for the local government, one of which would be property values. A good example there would be Santa Rosa. About 5% of its housing stock was destroyed uh, by fire. Uh, they had re recently had a bond measure out about a year ago on a ballot. Uh, it was actually defeated back in November of 18, but it was really to help advance housing recovery by financing acquisition and improvement of real property for affordable housing. So clearly they're still facing some challenges on how to rebuild. Uh, on the insurance front, there was actually a journal article, Wall Street Journal, that had talked about wildfires costing insurance companies more than $24 billion over the past two years, which is not an insignificant number. And then lastly, on the school district front, again, we do invest in some school districts in the state of California, and there was an article, again, with the Wall Street Journal citing over 1,300 schools, which serve over 480,000 students, had lost power. And of those schools, about 400 schools with 135,000 students closed their doors sending kids home. So why is this important to us? Well, generally speaking... You know, many school districts have debt with longer dated maturities and a slower amortization schedule. So what that means really is those debt payments are based on a district's ability to keep enrollment at a certain level. So those risks may alter those projections and really create problems down the road. So while in the short run, state and local governments should be able to absorb these costs. However, over time, these financial commitments have the potential to strain governments. These issues highlight the reasons why we employ a bottom-up research approach and integrate ESG into our overall investment process to account for risks such as these. So thanks for listening. We hope you found this information helpful. As always, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at cr at breckenridge.com with any questions or comments.